Welcome to Learn Me Right in Health Law and Bioethics, aka the H-Lab. I'm Sinead. And I'm Ruthie. And this podcast is aimed for literally anybody interested in topical health law issues, where we talk to experts who present evidence-based research. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal or medical advice. Any research or resources that are referred to within the podcast will be uploaded to our show notes after each episode. These podcasts are supported by the Australian Centre for Health Law Research, where both Ruthie and myself are PhD students. And with that in mind, do 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 do! Welcome to episode seven of Learn Me Right. Today, we are joined by the delightful and very intelligent Casey Haining, who is a research fellow at QUT and also works at the University of Melbourne. And she's going to be talking to us about her research on abortion. Casey, can you tell us a little bit, little bit more about your role at QUT and at the University of Melbourne? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ruthie. So um, I'm a research fellow at um, QUT, and so I work in the wonderful end-of-life team. Um, And I have been predominantly doing work on the Western Australian um, VAD model um, with uh, Professor Ben White and Professor Lindy Wilmot. Um, But I will be looking into some Victorian um, work um, in the upcoming uh, weeks and months so very excited to be doing that as I am a Victorian um, and I guess my other I share this role with my role at the University of Melbourne so I predominantly work within the Centre for Health Equity um, at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health um, but I also do occasional uh, work for the Melbourne Law School um, in both a research and uh, teaching capacity. So you're a very, very busy human, what I gather from that. (laughs) So thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to um, come on our show and talk with us. I have some rapid fire questions for you. The first one is your pronouns. So my pronouns are she and her. Thank you. Your highlight of the year this year. Um... My highlight was actually meeting the team at QT in person. So I started during the lockdown. So actually coming up to Brisbane and meeting the wonderful QT team, um, end of life team, and also people outside of that, yourself. <laughs> um, and it has just been such a wonderful, wonderful experience. Everyone's so lovely. So definitely the highlight of my year. And one of the highlights of our year is you coming up and getting to spend some time with you. So highlights all round uh your coffee order um it changes so i do like a matcha um i do like a turmeric latte i do like a chai latte um all with different milks so um yes i'm very it depends on the day Um, and then if i'm having just straight coffee i'll have it black okay excellent okay and uh, I do know the answer to this, but for the benefit of our audience, what would you sing at karaoke? Um, I am, I do quite like karaoke. I'm not particularly good, but I do love it. Um, and my favourite song is probably Bleeding Love by Leonie, Leona Lewis, um, but kind of hand over the mic when it gets to those long and high notes. <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, so you're a, a team sharer in, in karaoke. The best way to be. Exactly. I give it to people who can do a much better job. 
the benefit of everyone involved. Okay, so Casey, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Can you tell us a little bit more about your current research and your topic that you are looking into at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Rufi. So um, I am going to be discussing my research in abortion, which is one of the areas of focus at um, that I do at the University of Melbourne. And just to say that this is not solely my research by any means, um, and so... I do work with a number of collaborators and predominantly um, this is the work that is fueled by um, Professor Louise Keogh. So I, I just want to um, preface that discussion. So, and, but also our wonderful collaborators um, from multiple institutions, in, including QUT, um, but I won't list them all just in case I forget some on the off the cuff, but just wanted to say that to frame our discussions but um in terms of kind of my areas of focus now um in the abortion space so it kind of is quite broad so working on a broader project that's comparing um decriminalization and the effect of decriminalization particularly using australia as a case study but um predominantly comparing to the uk but um as one of the projects um another project involved in is looking at what we call these late termination review panels that operate within health services. Um, also doing a little bit of work around um, regional provision um, and the kind of postcode lottery, um, as well as um, the impact of uh, conscientious objection on abortion. So kind of different spaces and have kind of varying roles in multiple projects. Wow, that's that's awesome. That is so much to get across, and that's super impressive that you you've been able to get across all of those different problems. Um, we were wondering if you could share with us a, a particular research problem that you've been working on, or are particularly interested in, or um, uh, for example, why is conscientious conscientious objection a particular problem, and what that means for Australia? Um, but yeah, yeah, certainly. So I guess. Um... I could probably speak um, in terms of drawing in that focus. I'll probably speak about um, conscientious objection um, just because I've kind of been working on this in different ways. So it was the subject of my thesis. Um, it was predominantly in the voluntary assisted dying space, but kind of moved um, also towards abortion over time. Um, but I guess conscientious objection is um, an interesting um, phenomenon and it's something that I've thought about quite a lot over the years. Um, and I think when we think about conscientious objection, so for those who kind of don't know, well, what exactly is conscientious objection? It's essentially when a health practitioner will claim that they don't want to participate or partake in a particular aspect of a health service that is lawfully available because of their conscience. So that could be moral beliefs, it could be religious beliefs, etc. Um, so it's it's not um, broad enough to kind of encapsulate things like prejudicial um, beliefs or um, mere inconvenience, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but really on grounds of conscience. Um, and so why does that matter in terms of abortion and abortion access is because 
if we have too many people um, claiming a conscientious objection, then women, and when I use the term women, um, I do acknowledge that it's not solely women who access abortion, but I use women in the sense that it's predominantly women, um, overwhelmingly. So just to put that into context, but I guess it is a lawful health service. And when you don't have, because it is, we operate in a highly medicalized model. And what I mean by that is that you need to still get, get an abortion through a health practitioner. So whether that is, a medical abortion, so again, just for terminology, so a medical termination is when we kind of prescribe, um, it's often MS2 step in Australia, which is approved up to nine weeks gestation, so 63 days. Um, so that still needs to get a prescription from a health professional and be dispensed by a pharmacist. Um, but we've also got surgical terminations they're produced in health services as well. But both of those models are really contingent on a health professional. So if you don't have a health professional who is willing to assist you in accessing a termination, whether that is medical termination or surgical termination, you might have difficulty accessing um, a health service that you're lawfully um, entitled to um, should you wish to go down that path. And I guess... In terms of, well, why is conscientious objection if we are protecting it? So every jurisdiction protects what we call the right to conscientious objection. There's different caveats um, put on that depending on what jurisdiction you come from. Um, but I guess in terms of when we think about this, it's about to what extent do we balance these two competing rights, that is the right to access a lawful um, health service and also protecting doctor's conscience so what we see most jurisdictions do is they come to some kind of compromise and what I mean by that is well it can be in different um compromise can be I guess um presented in different ways so for instance you could um as most jurisdictions do say you can't claim a conscientious objection in an emergency situation so for instance if the maternal health is at risk um or another uh, another fetus is at risk, or you can do it through um, imposing obligations. So, for instance, requiring someone who's claiming claiming a conscientious objection to refer, or provide a list of services, or um, by declaring their conscientious objection to the patient. So, in terms of different types of regulations. Um, and this, again, varies depending on state, you really see the difference um, kind of play out in terms of, well, to what extent access might be facilitated um, and to what extent it might be based on how it is framed in law. Thank you so much. That was such an interesting overview. And I have a couple of questions. One is... Can you tell us a little bit more? I know you touched on the impact that this has on women. Can you touch a little bit more on those those impacts? So what are, what specifically um, is the consequence of having a medical model of abortion and potentially a large proportion of people not willing to be involved in this medical or health service? Yeah, sure. Sorry. I guess it comes down to... 
a kind of the ability to access. And so what this also means is because we're talking about a woman with particular, when we think about abortions, what happens is we have particular gestations. So um, in Australia, um, most jurisdictions will make a distinction between an earlier um, termination and a later termination. So they don't actually use that word, but basically up until... Um, a particular gestation, certain conditions will apply to be eligible. And then post that particular gestational limit, we have additional requirements. So the ability for a woman to actually access the termination becomes difficult, but more difficult the later it comes. Um, a, because there's more requirements, but it also means later in the person, later in the woman's um, gestational um journey basically it, it kind of restricts what type of abortion she can and what kind of skill that's needed to perform that um, termination so therefore it might be that she needs to go to a particular health service post a particular gestation because it might be within the capability of other um, hospitals etc um, and so what we typically see is these access barriers in terms of causing delay um, and kind of what options are then become available. Um, but we also see this particularly in regional um, and rural areas where there isn't a lot of health services already. Um, and so if you're going to your general practitioner in particular and they're a conscientious objector, then you're going to have to travel out. Um, and that obviously has a huge kind of financial um burden and travel burden um, and it's not necessarily feasible um, for everyone um, but we also see conscientious objection um, play out in different ways so depending on the conscientious objector we can we have seen empirical research that we've done where um, because of one's beliefs they might um intentionally or unintentionally impose, trying to impose their beliefs on the woman um, or make her feel guilty about her decision to pursue a termination. Um, so it does kind of play out in, in different ways. Um, and, you know, to kind of when a woman's met with a barrier or I guess a sense of, you know, rejection or a setback, um, that might be difficult in terms of her future decision-making, but also her ability to access a health service that is actually going to be able to facilitate her request. So basically, whilst abortion is decriminalised in Queensland, that doesn't necessarily mean that every woman who needs an abortion can get the one that she has. And the same thing for the other states in Australia, states and territories. Yeah, so I, I guess that's it's a really... Um, is a really interesting um, position to be in because decriminalisation um, is significant for a number of um, reasons, um, particularly around um, because what's tended to parallel with decriminalisation is more liberal abortion laws. Um, and it does to some extent, I suppose, help um, kind of bring out the stigma with abortion in terms of moving it outside of being considered to be a criminal matter to one of health. 
Now that stigma, you know, we would be quite naive to say that stigma around abortion doesn't still exist. Um, it does. Um, and we we can see this, you know, globally. You can see what's happening into the in the US at the moment. But what even though decriminalization has um, kind of made a significant impact in terms of, I guess, addressing some of that stigma or making abortion more available to women. It is not, it's not kind of to be equated with access because there is still significant access barriers that women face. Many um, conscientious objection is nearly one of them. Thank you so much, Casey. And I do want to ask you, and I'm sure Sinead is busting to ask as well about the United States, because that's obviously something that people are talking about a lot at the moment. But just one thing I quickly wanted to just clarify is, can you just explain a little bit more about the difference between decriminalisation and introducing abortion laws? Um, Just for the listeners who might not have a legal background, can you explain what the difference between those two things is? Yeah, sure. Um, And sorry, I should have really clarified this before, but decriminalisation is basically when something is not no longer regulated by criminal law. So what we see in Australia is it is abortion has been largely decriminalised. Um, it is still certain aspects are criminal in the sense that, you know, if it's not, produ- um, if an abortion isn't procured by a health practitioner, for instance, or in some states in a particular facility, that w- can still be within the governance of the criminal law. Western Australia is partially decriminalised because it is, abortion is still technically within their criminal act, but it is subject to the Health um, Miscellaneous Provisions Act. But basically what we see is abortion, um, when it moves um, post-decriminalisation, is basically it is largely regulated by what we would call health law. Um, or health legislation. So whether that is it has a unique um, abortion act, which most states have done, um, or it could be regulated within kind of a broader health act. So we see that in WA and ACT, for instance. So basically what it is, it is just this recognition that abortion isn't necessarily a criminal offence, but it is a matter of healthcare um, and kind of reformulating that rephrasing it in healthcare um, because abortion is, and I guess, you know, when we think about abortion, abortion is a form of healthcare. It is a form of healthcare. So even the World Health Organization as early as, you know, 2003 recognized abortion as a healthcare, um, one of the safest medical procedures when performed properly. Um, So what we saw prior to decriminalization in Australia is that um, abortion was largely recognised within the criminal law, um, which it didn't mean that people still couldn't get abortions, but abortion would only be lawful in kind of extreme circumstances. And these were largely articulated within common law, that is law determined by courts. So there was kind of a more ambiguous framing um, than what we see now where we kind of have a clearer um, understanding in terms of where abortion um, can be lawfully um, procured um, in terms of generally within the gestational periods which are prescribed within legislation. 
So there's largely been a three-step process to allowing women access to abortion. Step one, decriminalising it, so taking it out of the criminal law. Step two, introducing some health law to regulate it. And then step three, the more practical consequences of actually improving access. And one of those things is dealing with and finding a good balance between conscientious, conscientious objection and the right to, you know, freedom of moral um, uh, moral conscience, um, but then also allowing women to have access to a totally legal and safe procedure. So from your research, uh, have you found any particular solutions or um, good models from maybe international jurisdictions or, or countries as to how we can best best solve or find that balance? Yeah, and I suppose um, in saying that, so um, I have particular views on conscientious objections. So personally, my viewpoint is that conscientious objection is really important. It's really important to respect but I also subscribe to this compromise position, whereas if a particular procedure is lawful, then there needs to be access through um, the state. So in terms of what is the optimal regulation, I guess I I don't necessarily know the answer to that now. Um, and just to kind of preempt it, um, work that is going to be done is um, empirical work which is led by Professor Louise Keogh but also um, by Professor Lindy Mont at QT, um, Professor Julian Savalescu and um, my colleague uh, Dr Bronwyn Murner is they will be doing leading this empirical work to kind of work with stakeholders to kind of find the regulatory model. So until that kind of um, novel work gets done, I'm very hesitant to propose what is the optimal um, regulation. But I guess in terms of some preliminary thoughts and in terms of what I see is I don't necessarily see it solely within the law. And I think that the state um, can do a lot in this area. So some early work, so to put this in context, for instance, in Victoria, um, abortion was decriminalised in 2008. Um, in Victoria kind of really changed the trajectory of conscientious objection because it introduced a referral requirement. And in Victoria, that means you need to, uh, conscientious objector needs to refer to a help, um, someone within the same regulated profession. They also need to declare their, um, their conscientious objection to the patient which is really significant in and of itself because if you're saying to a patient who's presenting to you that I cannot give you an abortion because of my conscientious objection rather than I just can't give you an abortion, that communicates that this is still lawful because what we kind of see is this disconnect in terms of kind of a condemnation as opposed to this is just my view, you can you can access it elsewhere. So I think Victoria does have kind of a good model, but the argument against that model is in terms of, well, actually that's quite an affront on a, a health practitioner's conscience to refer on to another practitioner if they know that that might help that woman get an abortion, which is a um, medical procedure that they fundamentally disagree with. So I guess... In, the law is limited in that sense. And so what we see um, is really kind of things being done at the state level 
to assist this. So through um, kind of development of health services and phone lines. So for instance, there's um, something called 1800 My Options in Victoria, whereby it offers a referral service. So women can directly contact that um, service who will be able to put them in contact with a willing provider. Um, and so they can kind of bypass that kind of interaction with that doctor. But again, the success on those services depends on the knowledge um, of women of those services. So I know it because I've worked in this space, but perhaps it's it's not necessarily advertised. Um, and it also depends on kind of referral networks being in place. So it's all well and good to refer to a willing provider, but if it's not within a reasonable geographical proximity, we've still got those kind of access barriers. So I think in terms of what is the optimal solution, it is kind of getting everyone on board and thinking about the interaction of not just um, health professional obligations, um, but also the role of state. And that also comes through, you know, not just the establishment of these state-based services and putting referral pathways in place, but also kind of advertising it um, to women and making it kind of known um, and also educating health practitioners about this. So some people aren't providers because for a myriad of reasons and not we do see that people aren't providing um, and they might not necessarily have a conscientious objection. So it is kind of, I guess, a role of the state to think about, well, what kind of education, what kind of training do we still need to do in this space um, and what kind of general awareness do we need to do to assist that? Because, you know, we're kind of thinking about a variety of stakeholders when, we, when we're thinking about this. So it's really to kind of come to a compromise solution where everyone can still kind of navigate their own processes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was also just realising that um, that the 1-800, is it my choice? My options. My options is a, is an awesome way to bypass those those really difficult interactions. Um, and the, the problem about, you know, regional and rural, rural Australians not having access to abortions is not specific to abortion. It is, you know, like a, it's a general problem in Australia where um, everyone does not have equal access to all, all healthcare options and services that they need. But conscientious objection can play a very specific role in that because you might have access to a GP, but one that's not necessarily going to be able to help you. Yeah. Um, so this has been incredibly interesting and it's really awesome to know that there is empirical research being done to help both practitioners who conscientiously object and, and what to do about that, but then also the patients and what works best for everyone. Um, we look forward to, to you being able to share that information if you can when that finally comes out. Um, but before then, we have one last question for you. And that is, whilst, you know, it's up to the government and researchers, especially to try and find these big, big political um, and legal solutions, what is it important for the ordinary person like myself to know or what can they do to help in this space? Yeah, sure. And I guess, you know, um, as you said, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of research being done and would never um, wish to understate the importance of research. But also a lot of this has really spurred through advocacy um, and advocacy in terms of 
both, I guess, the general public and women in general and um, kind of banding together, um, but also kind of advocacy organisations. So, for instance, um, in Queensland, I know you have a wonderful organisation um, known as Children by Choice, and they do a lot of fantastic work in Queensland. Um, but it also um, also depends on the health profession profession as well and the kind of clinical champions who have really driven change. Um, but it really requires a variety of stakeholders to kind of work together, raising awareness, I guess, trying to destigmatize abortion to the extent possible, and just being really, I guess, um, understanding and open to people's views, um, but also understanding that abortion is a legal process it is a part of healthcare and I guess in terms of you know thinking about restricting abortion so some people who might just who might have a conscientious objection to abortion some people will think that you know it should still be a criminal matter but some conscientious objectors will argue well actually I think it is good that it's decriminalized because what happens when something isn't like abortion isn't decriminalized is that people try and procure the abortion themselves and that um, with that is significant maternal risk um, and morbidity so it's about kind of navigating this system um, and being respectful for people's views and I guess trying to destigmatize within ordinary conversations because I think you know, we all kind of have a visceral reaction to abortion and I think it's about educating each other um, about abortion and what that means um, and I guess regardless of one's views to kind of be respectful um, in whatever fashion that that comes with. So I think it, it is um, sometimes people are quick to demonise um, conscientious objectors um, and and this is not to say there has been some abhorrent behaviour by conscientious objectors in terms of really kind of not only not following lawful obligations, but I guess trying to condemn women. Um, and I would never condone such behaviour. But in terms of, I guess, respecting conscientious objection within the bounds of the law, um, I think, you know, a lot of um, conscientious objectors are not there to obstruct. Um, it's just a genuine belief. And so I think if they can still facilitate access to some extent, then that goes a significant way because, you know, respecting conscience, I think, is really important in something like medicine because it's about respecting pluralism and respecting different values and belief systems. But it's also trying to navigate that within a contemporary, um, largely secular society um, and realising that through a democratic process that we have this lawful medical procedure um, and we know that it is very beneficial in terms of both the women, individual women's health but also public health more broadly when this is lawful and this is accessible. So it's really about, I guess, generating that balance and seeing how we can all operate within the health system so we get to that kind of optimal compromise. Exactly. And we can, um, I'll, I'll say one more thing before I let Ruthie jump in. Sorry. <laughs> um, 
I was just going to say that um, my supervisor has published on on abortion um, and he made this really good point and it was that you can't morally prove one way or the other that abortion is 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 moral because morals are made up right <laughs> we humans make them up but we can use science and and um, health studies and research to prove that abortion is actually safer when practiced in in regulation um uh, for for women and it is also safer than actually continuing with a pregnancy um i think we we often forget how how risky um pregnancies are to the human body not only the pregnancy but also the childbirth so you can, um, whilst we can respect each other's moral choices and and beliefs there, we also have to respect, if you accept the, the valid truth of science, that this is actually a, a, a healthy um, and scientifically like permissible procedure for women to access. And I think, you know, um, that's really important. It is a health service that this is a significant um health service that needs to be available to women for the reasons that you suggested um, as well, you know, both um, in terms of physical, psychological health. Um, so, you know, it's just obviously it does ha attract um, some contention, um, but by and large it is, you know, a very safe procedure when performed properly and I think it's a very good thing for it to be um, not only decriminalised, but accessible to those who wish to go down that path. Yes, I completely agree with you. I must invite Ruthie to join <laughs> us. Um, Casey, thank you. Thank you so much. I do just have one question before we finish. You mentioned before about the importance of advocacy and education, and I think that this has become a really um, publicly debated and sort of known topic given what has gone on in the United States. So obviously I know your, your research not, is not necessarily focused on that, but I was just wondering if you had any comments or perceptions about how what has happened there recently might impact on how we think about abortion in Australia or what the public might know or want to know about it. Yeah. So I think um, I'm quite concerned, as I'm sure a lot of people are, in terms of what happened in the US. Um, so for context, for people who don't know, there was essentially um, a recognised constitutional protection um, for abortion up until um, kind of fetal viability through a seminal case known as Roe v Wade that has recently been overturned. So what used to happen within the US is because it was a constitutional protection, it means states could enact laws, um, but they were still they still were restricted by what was set out in Roe v. Wade in terms of um, having laws up to that kind of fetal viability. Now, without that constitutional protection, what happens then is that states have more discretion in terms of regulating the abortion law because they haven't got that kind of um, risk of it getting um, overturned based on it breaching the constitutional right. Um, and this kind of spurred even earlier than this decision. Um, so the, the recent um, passing of the Dobbs case, which saw Roe v Wade um, overturned, um, earlier we, last year, we saw the passing of the Texas Heartbeat Act, um, which was 
a clever drafting resulted in um, basically the passing of what we call the fetal heartbeat law, where abortions were um, precluded post uh, the detection of a fetal heartbeat. And I, I say that in um, inverted comments, commas, um, but that was generally six weeks. And so what we're seeing is these kind of restrictive laws coming out of the US and kind of going backwards. So, um, and that has to do with kind of some of the conservative states. Um, will that filter through to Australia? Well, I think we generally have in, in the past had a very conservative um, federal government, government, but what we have seen is each of the individual states still come to the decriminalisation, uh, still come to decriminalise abortion um, and enact laws even in the presence of that conservatism. So we don't have a constitutional right in Australia um, and each of the states have already led laws. I, I think it would be a little bit of a stretch to think that we would go back on those just because we've kind of already made that way through advocacy efforts, et cetera. Um, that's my inkling. But we still see kind of the impact of the conservative federal government on abortion asset, um, aspects in terms of, you know, um, for instance, Medicare and things like that. So I have kind of answered your question in a long-winded way. I think that the US situation won't necessarily filter down to Australia, but what it has done is I think through the public um, publicising what has happened um, in the US and the uproar has kind of raised awareness to the issue. I think it is, you know, within our minds. And I think, you know, some of the broader issues that arise when you do have restrictive um, abortion laws. Thank, Thank you, you so much. So much. That was incredibly interesting. Um, I, I've learned so much, as I always do when I hear you talk. Um, so thank you from me. Ruthie, did you have any last comments? Just thank you from me as well, Casey. It's just always so wonderful to hear you speak. And I think that we both learned a lot today from speaking with you. So thanks very much for your time and for being here. Thank you both. I feel um, very privileged to be a part of this wonderful podcast and um, delighted for the opportunity to be interviewed by both you extraordinary people. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you.